Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Secrets and Spies and Espresso Martini. So, Matt, how are you and how was your summer break? I'm doing good. Uh, I wouldn't say it was much of a break. Um, it's more just a, a period with less to do than the months before, where I sort of took yeah. that time and shifted it to to other things. Uh, was working mm-hmm. on was working on the novel on on Active Measures quite a bit. Um, yeah, didn't didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> too much <laughs> fun, which is kind of hold up working, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah yeah how about oh, you cool cool yeah no i had a nice couple of weeks off the beginning of august was a bit busy and then um i was trying to take the last two weeks off and i say trying because still a few little worky things happen um but i did go to my first ever greek wedding which was cool um so i was in greece for a couple of uh, well for about four days um at the end of august early september and it was that was lovely got a bit sunburnt and attacked by some well i got attacked by mosquitoes at the airport on the way out i did absolutely fine on the trip itself and then i don't know what happened um but as i got off the airplane i just noticed my leg had been completely massacred by what i assume was a mosquito or it could have been a flea i don't know but (laughs) So something got on the plane that attacked my legs, um, and I could have yeah. done without that. But there we go. <laughs> yeah, uh, but no, the, the wedding itself was really great. Um, lots of late nights and lots of loud music. In fact, I got a warning on my iPhone that I'd been in a loud environment for three days in succession. That was quite funny. Um, and it did strike me as well. It's the closest I've been to um, Ukraine in, in a long time because um, the Black mm. Sea was about 400 miles roughly from where i was um yeah and that puts it all in perspective a little bit as well it's just kind of crazy thinking that you know whilst we're enjoying the sun having some fun there's this terrible kind of war going on just you know beyond our sight line um so where in greece were you we're a place called marathon so it was on the coast um yeah yeah no really good highly recommend it highly recommend it so no lovely lovely time so yeah but uh but yeah, August, my God, what a busy month. Um, in a way, I'm kind of glad we did take the time off because <laughs> looking at our list of stories, um, as you put it, it was quite intimidating and it is. Um, yeah. And and um, so, you know, on today's episode, we're going to do our very best to cover a wide range of stories um, in what turns out to be quite a dramatic August. But I still think, despite our best efforts, we're going to be scratching the surface. So on today's show, uh, on Espresso Martini, we're going to take a look at a coup in Nigeria and Gabon. Uh, We've also got Prigozhin's death and his legacy haunting us from the grave. We also have Russian pilots involved in a dramatic defection to Ukraine with a Mil Mi-8 helicopter that's sort of like a helicopter version of the hunt for October. (laughs) And then on Extra Shot, which follows this show, and that's the Patreon show, we will be looking at the concerns of a NATO collapse if uh, Donald Trump is re-elected as president. We will also be looking at a mysterious submarine sinking off the coast of Taiwan and a new security agreement between China and Fiji. And we also have an update on that GCHQ stabbing story that we spoke about i think that was in probably march april we spoke about that it's been a a while um 
And, yeah. and Matt, you also brought to my attention the uh, the Errol Morris, the legendary sort of film documentary filmmaker, has a documentary coming out about uh, John Le Carre, and it looks like it's his last interview because John Le Carre died a few years back now. Um, and this this interview looks very detailed. Um, and Errol Morris, I mean, he's made some great movies, so uh, so I'm looking forward to having a bit of a chat about that later. Um, so just for listeners, if you're new to us, welcome. Uh, if you're an existing listener, welcome back. And um, don't forget, if you want to get access to Extra Shot, you will need to be a Patreon subscriber. And Patreon subscribers will also get the articles our very intimidating article list of everything that we were considering whilst preparing this episode <laughs> and if you do become a and if you do become a patreon subscriber um you get a, a free coffee cup or a set of coasters um and it, it depends on which subscription level you go on there so uh, we will kick off with the uh, recent coup in nigeria and Gabon, and um, I was going to take some. This is quite a complex story, so I'm actually going to take some key points from three articles from the Drive, BBC News, and AP News, and I'll link to all of those in the the show notes. Um, so just to summarise what happened, and then Matt, I'll come to you for your thoughts, um, mm-hmm. and then circle back to myself. So um, the key points are: military takeovers are resurging in West and Central Africa, as evidenced by the recent coups in Nigeria and Gabon. These coups now make it seven in. In three years in Africa, so that's quite a lot. Um, in both Nigeria and Gabon, as well as Af- other African nations, discontent is widespread due to job shortages, corruption, colonial influences, and mani- manipulative electoral processes, including extended presidential terms. And uh, there's one or two countries out there that suffer from that as well. <laughs> and uh, we'll be talking about that later. Gabon's President Bongo's controversial third-term election after his father's 40-year rule amid uh, doubts about his health and leadership has led to the recent military intervention um, in Gabon, which was on the 30th of August. And to be honest, I didn't even know that had happened because it was so relaxed on my holiday that uh, I didn't even know that happened until I was preparing this episode. I was like, oh my God, there's another coup. So uh, there we go, because I was all very focused on Nigeria. Um, And then previously on the 26th of July, uh, you had the coup in Nigeria where General Abdur Rahman Chani led a coup against Nigeria's government and placing President Mohamed Bazoum under house arrest. Nigeria's stability is essential for counter-terrorism efforts in the Sahel region and and that's counter-terrorism against Al-Qaeda and ISIS affiliated groups and also Boko Haram. The ECOWAS, which stands for the Economic Community of West African States, have imposed sanctions against Nigeria and warned of a possible intervention. They also have condemned the coup in Gabon. So with the potential intervention um, in Nigeria, not all members of the ECOWAS or ECOWAS, is that how you, well, how would you make That's that? ECOWAS. ECOWAS, there we are. Sounds better in American than yeah. English. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, that, that, they threatened, um, obviously, an intervention in Nigeria, but not all members agreed. So Burkina Faso and Mali, which are apparently both aligned with Russia, surprisingly have opposed intervention. Um and whilst Nigeria supports intervention. The uh, US ordered evacuations of non-emergency personnel after the coup and US troops have been restricted to base operations. The US has significantly invested in Nigeria since 2012, primarily focusing on counter-terrorism and military training. Notably, some of the coup leaders like 
Abdur Rahman Chani uh, received U.S. military training. Um, so, yeah. And then the Russian government have condemned both coups in uh, Nigeria and Gabon. Russia's Wagner mercenary group, already active in several African nations, could increase its presence in Nigeria. Meanwhile, China, with its vast investments in Africa, is closely watching the developments. The instability in Nigeria and the Sahel region might result in a greater influence from global powers like Russia and China. The Sahel region is already plagued by jihadist violence as we mentioned earlier and Nigeria's destabilization might strengthen extremist factions. Nigeria had a reintegration program for former jihadi fighters which now faces an uncertain future due to the coup. The initiative had seen a return of approximately 160 ex-fighters with many more in the pipeline. Both Nigeria and Gabon are both resources rich with reserves of uranium, gold, silver, and then you have diamonds, gold, and also uranium in Gabon. Those are the kind of key points. Um, so, Matt, any any thoughts on any of, of that? <laughs> well, I think the question that a lot of people have had, at least since since this last coup in Niger and then in Gabon, is you know, like what's causing this pandemic of coups d'état in the in the region. Um, I don't think there's one sort of clear catch-all answer to apply to all of them. You know, I mean, these are all kind of, I mean, yeah, they're so sort of roughly in the same uh, region, but many of them are former French colonies, which seems to have some role to play in this. I mean, there's a, there's a long history of, of colonialism that stretches back in this region that uh, I'm not really qualified to go into in any kind of great depth, but that's certainly there. The specific reasons behind each coup are sort of different, you know? So, um, in, in the coup in, um, Niger, the, um, commander of the, of the presidential guard, Mm. um, was about to be fired. Mm. He was going to be, uh, sacked, by the president and he sort of decided, okay, well then rather than, you know, waiting to be fired, why don't I just take control of the country? (laughs) One way of dealing with it. Right. Um, (laughs) It's like, yeah, like you hear like, like, like your boss is going to fire you and you think, okay, I'm just going to go in that morning and just take over the Mm, company and mm, say, I'm in charge now. mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That's certainly one way to do it. Um, The coup in uh, Gabon is sort of a, a palace coup. As I understand it, it was a, it was a cousin um, of the current um, president who sort of, muscled his way in uh have you heard of something called the coup trap no i haven't actually no so it's a um it's a theory yeah. i guess in the realm of international relations i don't want to say it's it's more it's not so much a theory i mean i think it's, it's quite backed with 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 evidence mm. but it basically claims that the key greatest indicator to predict whether or not a country will experience a coup in the future is whether or not they've experienced one in the past ah. So yeah. basically, if you previously experienced a coup, you're a lot more likely to experience one again um, in the future. And this region has been kind of, you know, endemic with these uh, events mm. over the years. So mm. um, Burkina Faso in a span has two coups in a span of nine months in 2022. Um, Mali has had three coups over nine years in 2012, uh, 2015, 2022. Um, if anything, I think this trend is sort of reverting to a a a norm that existed mm. during the Cold mm. War. 
Um, you know, also at a time when you had a lot of uh, great power competition mm. between the U.S. Mm. and the Soviet Union, like uh, Angola was um, quite heavily under yeah. Soviet influence during during the Cold War. Yeah. You had a lot of these um, different coups popping up in the region. Um, and then it was sort of after the Cold War when it was really just kind of the United States out there, you know, unopposed, pushing this idea of, you know, stable democratic governments, um, passing uh, sanctions on on any countries in the region who who did have a successful uh, coup d'etat, kind of put a stop to it for a while. But, you know, as we're moving away from that a bit, you know, like Putin famously said, you know, the Cold War was kind of a good thing because you had a multipolar world and it wasn't, you know, just all one global superpower running the show. And that's absolutely what uh, Russian foreign policy under under Putin's rule has been trying to achieve since then, you know, bringing back a, a multipolar world, having sort of competition with the West, with the United States. Yeah, I think if anything, it's a it's a kind of a, a, a reversion to to the norm for the area, um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and you, you have, you know, a sort of a belief that this is something that you can do and get away with mm, in the region. Mm. I mean, without any kind of real consequences, um, the sort of taboo has kind of melted away. Um, one of the the problems for the U.S. in the aftermath of this coup in Niger, the State Department hasn't even officially declared that as a coup. Mm. Um, the reason with that is, is I think you sort of uh, put in your in your intro there. Um, the Pentagon has invested a hundred mil uh, has invested a uh, hundred million um, in uh, counterterrorism efforts um, in the region. Has a drone base in I think it's uh, Agadez, like it yeah, is Agadez, like yeah. Um, right where I mean that area of 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 the Sahel in um, North Africa, moving closer towards the sort of southern edges of the Sahara, mm-hmm. is kind of the one place right now where jihadism is kind of flourishing. Um, in the world. So if, if the state department, if the white house comes out and declares that, you know, Niger, that the government there came to be as part of a coup d'etat under us law, we had to suspend all cooperation with them. So you have that, that messy kind of idea in international relations that comes into play mm. that, you know, okay, what's the, what's, what would be the greater harm to our interests right now? Just sort of, yeah, yeah. You know, looking the other way and keeping this cooperation mm, with them mm. on counterterrorism efforts to the extent that we can, or do we, you know, stick by our sort of democratic principles and say no, we're not going to um, support a government that came to power in a coup, and then you know you have no influence in the region. Mm, and to your mm. point, you know, and this gets complicated by our our next topic a bit with the fate of the Wagner Group. It's still kind of up in the air. You know, the Russians are are right there, more than willing to mm. to to come in. Well, they're definitely you know. definitely exploiting that situation, and I mean, there's 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 been alleged, uh, you know, Wagner fingerprints to the coup in Nigeria, at least. Um, so mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's definitely no saints out, out there at the moment. I mean, it's it sort of. Yeah, you've got sort of China and Russia is definitely increasing their influence in Africa. Um, we've seen certainly with um, the kind of mixed response towards condemning Russia with their war against Ukraine. Africa has been very mixed on that, especially I think South Africa, which is quite surprising. There's a lot of Russian influence in South Africa. Yeah. Um, and to your earlier point as well about the, the sort of terrorism side of things, I had an interview with um, former CIA officer Tracy Walder. I think it was about a year 
it a bit ago now. Um, and she highlighted in my interview that Africa is very much a hotspot for ISIS. And she even argued that Africa may be yeah. more important today than the Middle East in regard to Islamist-inspired terrorism. And that's definitely something we should dig into a bit more on a later podcast at some point. Because, um, you know, Africa definitely for me has been a bit of a, a blind spot um, just because there's so much to cover and it's very difficult to cover the entire world as an individual. Uh, it's a bit easier now. You're with me. Um, but it's it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's still quite tough to cover all these things. Um, and the other thing as well that crossed my mind, it kind of, these coups like, remind me slightly, but maybe not so much, but slightly of the Arab Spring. Um because with the Arab Spring, the majority of those uprisings in the Middle East were linked to discontent over living standards, security, and a lack of accountability of their respective governments. And certainly in Af many African nations, as we said earlier, there is this discontent about living standards and so on, um, which is leading to, you know, um, potentially leading to this vast number of coups that's been going on. Um, so right. it's no, it's an interesting one that. And the last thing, back to terrorism, obviously terrorist groups love unstable and failed states. It becomes kind of fertile ground for recruitment because terrorist groups yep. typically stand in for failed governments and they're able to provide resources such as food, water, and energy, um, whilst also creating a level of security with their hardline rule. And that typically... Um, goes against the inevitable rise in crime such as looting and robberies and kidnappings in failed states. All we need to do is look at reports of locals who lived under ISIS in Mosul for 36 months and the way they controlled the area and how a lot of people kind of tolerated ISIS just because ISIS brought in electricity and stuff and kept things kind of stable. So, um, you know, terrorist groups um, are smart you know i think a lot of people misunderstand terrorist groups they think they're just about blowing stuff up and all that i think sometimes you know it's also about power grabs it's about money um yeah especially yeah. vices they they got a lot of money um from areas from territories they took control of so you know in africa is you know rich in resources and this is why superpowers in a sense want their influence you know america china and russia definitely want to have a hand in what's going on in Africa because they're going to need access to uranium, diamonds or whatever, you know, and other resources. Um, and so, you know, terrorist groups know all that as well, um, and they can use that to their advantage. And if you make it a difficult place for Western companies or, or you know, Russian or Chinese companies to do business, uh, it, it could uh, bring knock up the price of those uh, minerals and resources. And, um, you know, and if, if the terrorist groups are kind of uh, in control of that, they can make a lot of profit out of all that. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And there's one, and one other interesting thing as well and we'll, i'll just quickly go into an article from the intercept you know uh, the point earlier about a lot of the soldiers who've been involved with these coups have been trained by um the u.s government in the in the fight against terrorism yeah. and um so this has sort of been a kind of growing pattern um that's been sort of picked up by the intercept and in an article by a guy called nick uh terse and um so the key points were you know one of the leaders behind nigeria's recent coup and the head of nigeria's special operation forces was trained by the US military. Since 2008, US military trained officers have been involved in 11 coups across West Africa. Um, and uh, the US is, as you mentioned earlier, heavily invested in Nigeria with US taxpayers spending over 500 million in the country since 2012. Um, and that's also led to a significant increase in the presence of US, US military personnel in those countries, growing from 100 to 1,016 within a decade. And obviously there's been the establishment of US outposts such as drone bases 
releases, etc. Um, yeah, and obviously the focus of those efforts would be mainly counterterrorism activities. Um, and uh, you know, and experts have argued that the predominant issues igniting conflict in that region really is deeply rooted in poverty and historical colonial legacies, corruption in the government, um, and political and ethnic tensions. And uh, so, yeah, so though that that. You know, it, it with uh, with that sort of training of these personnel, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the U.S.'s war on drugs efforts back from uh, the 1970s onwards, where the U.S. was sort of sure. training, um, you know, anti-cartel activities in places like Colombia and Mexico. And and the thing is, there was a bit of mission creep sometimes because um, some of the cartels or groups they were fighting happened to be also left-wing groups um because they were using the drug business to kind of finance um, their activities and so um yeah there's a very interesting very sort of dark legacy from you know if you look at the sort of 70s through to maybe the early 90s with quite a few us-backed military junters who um you know were quite right-wing um almost fascist and those groups were kind of attacking left-wing opposition groups like uh, farc and uh, in colombia um and yep. groups like farc were using the drug trafficking to finance their um activities so yeah it kind of gets a bit murky sometimes um when it comes to sort of training troops in in places like africa or south america and things and it can lead to this sort of local mission creep as i put it yeah i mean i, I think it's also it's it's worth looking at what the sort of three big foreign powers in the region you know what they want mm. i mean i think russia i think is probably the most self-interested actor you know that that you know like wagner comes in and basically just provide security to these strong men, you know, mm. bodyguards props them mm. up in exchange. Uh, they, you know, take over mines and kind of just extract these rare earth minerals to enrich themselves. I mean, that does absolutely nothing for the local population there whatsoever. The Chinese, they're interested in, in rare earth minerals mm. and such to the same extent, but they also do tons of infrastructure development. Yes. Yeah, they do. They're very, yeah, very good at that. You know, like Nigeria, Sudan, Kenya, building up um, completely new uh, passenger rail mm. uh, infrastructure, mm. you know? So they do do work there that that benefits the local population to, to some extent. I mean, there's various debt schemes that kind of finance these projects that in the long run kind of fuck over these countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's broadly across the, all of China's development efforts across the world. Yeah. Um, as far as the United States now, I mean, there's not, there's not a whole lot that we want out of the continent. I mean, our sort of interests for the last 20 years have essentially been counterterrorism and security efforts. Yeah. Well, there's one thing I find as well is a very disproportionate focus on American activities in Africa, whilst everybody seems to, and also historical legacies that are problematic, but people tend to forget the kind of current activities from China and stuff that are equally problematic in the region. Um, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. If, if you look at the activities of these, of, you know, like Russia or China in the, in the continent, you know, these are people, these are nations that I think, um, a lot would conventionally, many would conventionally understand, especially on the left, mm. to be seen as kind of anti-imperialist. But their actions are, I mean, I, I think you can make a, make a good argument that Russia and China are the most imperialist countries in the world today. Mm. You mm. know, when they just sort of go and just take and give back very little. I mean, they're sort of yeah. operating on the pushing forward the kind of worst impulses 
of European colonial rule on the continent. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, even, even back during, back during the cold war with, with, with the Soviets and their activities in, 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 in Africa, as far as like Angola and stuff, I mean, they were not operating from a place that, you know, we're going to come in and, you know, we're going to, um, liberate the poor African mm. proletariat to seize the means of production and unite, um, the continent under the bonds of socialist brotherhood. I mean, that was not their aims at all. You know, it was, it was, it was purely just extract, um, mm. as much mineral resources, as much wealth as you possibly can from the continent and just bring it back home. You know, it was mm. not, it was not, charity that they were offering mm. these countries and it's not yeah. charity that they're offering now yeah yeah and i find it very interesting as well like from a historical point of view there's so little known about russian activities in africa and um and south america during the cold war yet we do talk a lot about american activities in africa and and uh, central america uh, sorry south america as well um it comes up quite a lot actually and i'm like you know i feel like you know i don't know america was not alone in what was going on in in, in the world order during that time so yeah <laughs> yeah but uh, but there we go yeah yeah and um one other point that kind of came up i mean you know this summer i think you know you've probably seen it as well climate change has come up uh, as a big topic um because of the increasing temperatures we've had like big fires especially in greece not where i was but other parts of greece had terrible fires and so on and and the one thing that keeps kind of getting in the back of my mind is um i think we are quickly approaching a huge um potential huge battles for resources in in time um and i think that could only get worse as climate change increases i mean i was just reading an article just yesterday about one of the big fears at the moment the next pandemic may not focus on humans but it might focus on on crops um and it could wipe out wheat or corn yeah yeah and 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 that that would have a massively devastating effect on on global have a devastating effect on global food resources and already the war in Ukraine has a huge effect on things especially for Africa right now right or you have areas swaths of the world where it's would be just prohibitive for human beings to exist mm. you know yeah like it's just too hot for people to live yeah, and we're going to get mass migration, which we kind of already have, um, and we're not coping with it, especially in Europe. Um, you know, we, we're uh, governments are not coping with it. They're not coming up with strategies that um, that really are uh, humane. They kind of are just begrudgingly letting some people in, but doing everything they can to kind of deter people from coming over. But really, in yeah. in time, maybe in ten or twenty years' time, there'll be parts of the Middle East that'll be totally for certain parts of the year you won't be able to exist in. Um, what happens then? Yeah. I just don't know. And 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 so, um, yeah, it's just interesting, isn't it? Nations, the idea of nation states might well become challenged in time because of the crises that we will be facing as a human species. And I think, um, and and you know, and I'm worried that I don't see a level of cooperation. I'm starting to see more and more selfish behaviour. So you know, Russia, China, and America are becoming even more divided. Um, from each other and, and obviously internally as well, um, when we really need, in an ideal world, America, Russia, and China to kind of come together and team up and come up with some policies that will, um, in a sense, save us all from the devastating effects of climate change. And, and um, I don't, yeah. This is kind of jumping ahead a bit. I mean, we're going to talk about this in the um, extra shot, but China's mm. uh, 
sort of security cooperation agreements that they're pushing with Fiji and the Solomon mm. Islands and a lot of nations mm. in the South Pacific. And I was reading that in in preparation for this episode. And I thought, you know, they're going out of their way to develop these sort of security arrangements with these South Pacific countries that aren't going to exist in a couple of decades. Yeah. You know, like they're good. They're, they're, they're going to be underwater. Mm. Mm. And what are, yeah. And what are they going to benefit for that? That's the interesting. The country of Fiji may exist in spirit, but it won't be on that island. Mm. It'll be somewhere in, in Australia that the Australian government, you know, allows Fiji to come in as refugees in mass, you know, and have yeah. a, have a territory like you would have like an Indian reservation here mm. in the U S mm. you mm. know, that's what it's going to look like. It's not going to be that Island chain in the South Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, yeah, be a, it would be reduced to being named a bar named after it, you know, the Fiji bar or something in Sydney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the last distant yeah. memory of this islands that existed. Yeah. 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 I was, I, I've always got a bit of a soft spot for Fiji because about a year and a half ago, this podcast um, was number one in, in uh, political, I think it was news and political comment section on podcasting. Um, it was number one mm -hmm. in Fiji. Um, and uh, for one week, it was number one in Fiji. <laughs> <laughs> they always made me i've always liked that so i've got it as a signature of my email now it's like we were once the number one podcast in yep. fiji but uh, there we go so have a, a soft spot for fiji so i need to visit before uh before what you describe happens um which i hope doesn't happen but it could so i think we'll, we'll segue into um, a very important story in recent weeks which is the death of wagner boss and failed mutineer yegevni prigozhin um and it was an interesting piece from the conversation that segues quite nice is what we were just talking about here and it looks at his death through the lens of putin's motives in africa so i'll um i'll kind of go into those key points and then i'll, I'll come back to you matt and then there's another section we'll talk about as well where prigozhin haunts us from the grave so it's two interesting prigozhin bits here um so obviously you gave me prigozhin's assassination marks a pivotal moment in russian african relations as the leader of the wagner group prigozhin played a crucial role in advancing russian influence in africa since 2017 the Wagner Group, comprised of multiple shell companies, has been responsible for various destabilizing activities across Africa, including paramilitary operations, disinformation campaigns, and political interference. Brogosian had recently faced internal political challenges, including a power struggle with the Russian military, which hinted at his vulnerability. The Wagner Group under Prigozhin's leadership supported many African authoritarian leaders, increasing their dependence on Russia. Whilst the group's influence is vast and lucrative, Prigozhin's death poses challenges for Russia. Maintaining the Wagner operations without Prigozhin will require considerable effort and given the complexities of its dealings in Africa. Furthermore, any direct involvement in Wagner operations by the Russian government will eliminate any plausible deniability, exposing Russia to greater scrutiny and a potential backlash for Wagner's controversial activities, which includes numerous human rights abuses. Wagner's influence is deeply entrenched in several African regimes, many of those which are reliant on Moscow's backing. However, Russia's declining value of Africa is becoming more evident. Actions such as Russia Russia's withdrawal from the Black Sea grain deal, 
and the bombing of Ukrainian ports negatively affected Africa, revealing Russia's indifference to the continent's interests. This diminishing appeal is underscored by the decreased attendance of African heads of state at recent Russian-Africa summit. Furthermore, the circumstances uh, surrounding Prigozhin's death might also lead African leaders to reassess their associations with Russia, given the uh, potential risks and uncertainties there. So, Matt, um, before I come to you for your thoughts on all this, I have a question for you. Where were you when you first heard about Prigozhin's death? I was at home. I forget what I was doing, mm-hmm. but I was doing something completely unrelated and then just sort of saw, like, Mm. on my phone like Prigozhin killed in you know plane crash and did like a double take on it that i was like oh shit and then i think i immediately sent it to you (laughs) yeah 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 i was just like i I think there was a minute there that that i was like should we like hop on and record something real quick but i don't know we're off and we're not cnn and like i don't i don't know but Mm -hmm. um really just i mean it's something that like you kind of knew it was coming but to actually mm. see it happen and to happen in that way is not what I would have mm. expected. Yeah. No, no. Well, yeah, it was, um, I, I call it a contra-zoom moment. And what I mean by that, for people who don't know what a contra-zoom is, so a contra-zoom is where the camera, so it's Jaws. Do you remember that scene in Jaws where Roy Scheider's on the beach and, and he's relaxing yeah. and then suddenly somebody, I don't know, screaming in terror because there's a shark and he stands up and the camera does this weird effect where it's moving out, it's moving physically backwards but zooming in. It kind of does this effect where the, the background changes. And so for me, every time I, I, I have a bit of shocking information that I come across, I kind of in my head imagine a contra-zoom happening. Yeah. So I call it a contra-zoom moment. And um, literally, I'd just come out of this 50th anniversary screening of the film Serpico, which I'd been enjoying as part of my holiday. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where I got your text. I was in <laughs> central London. And I was like, like you, I was just very tempted to cut my holidays short and jump back on the air of a special. But I kind of felt to myself, well, I didn't really want ru- uh, Putin to ruin my holiday. Uh, <laughs> he's already done enough damage. Well, the situation was so, it was so fluid. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't really a lot that we knew. No, that- no, exactly. And it, it's still, there's still a bit of murkiness around it. I mean, there's all sorts of conflicting reports yeah. of what may have downed his plane. I mean, I read one thing somewhere where uh, apparently there was a guy who was wanting to buy the plane and had a a very extensive look around it then there was somebody else um who was related to one of the stewardesses who died on the plane because it wasn't just the wagner uh, employees who died on the plane or bosses it was also this you know the poor cabin crew and the pilots who you know um who who died and apparently one of the stewardesses um had mentioned that some engineers had been you know going around the plane prior to takeoff which was apparently unusual um and then there was also talk of like uh, a missile hit the plane um which to me then had echoes of mh17 and i thought there's some kind of interesting uh poetic uh uh something there but um but yeah so matt i mean sorry i'm banging on a bit what are your thoughts on Prigozhin, his death and his role in Putin's agenda in Africa. I think, well, in general, just speaking about his death mm. as a whole, I think the manner in which it was done is very important. Yeah. As, you know, the most, by far the most public, blatant mm. assassination that he's, that, that Putin has done. Mm. First one that I'm pretty sure the first one that i'm aware of that's someone directly kind of in his inner circle Mm. 
You know, mm, I mean, is. the various other assassinations mm. have been defectors, political dissidents, mm, people mm. that were criticizing him. I mean, yeah, Prigozhin launched a mutiny and was and was marching on the Kremlin, but was still kind of yeah. in his inner circle, a, a, a stressor to the right of him. Um, but we wouldn't call him opposition, really. But that so of a public way to get rid of him, I think it just demonstrates a message to the rest of the Russian elite that like, if you try and you miss, this is what happens to you, you know? And I think, I don't know if I was talking to you about this on the day of, or, or someone else, but basically said, you know, in a kind of grim way, I think this is a good thing that he's gone. I mean, I remember saying when we talked right after the mutiny that I think there was a, a, a desire of people in the West to see, you know, someone marching on Putin, openly opposing him mm-hmm. and and the chaos and stuff that incites, mm-hmm. oh, he's weaker now, that mm-hmm. that's a good thing. And I, like, it's, it, it's not. You don't want these different sort of competing poles groups within Russia um, fighting it out, you know, in a country with thousands of nuclear weapons. It's just not something that you want. And I think, frankly, someone like Prigozhin, who complete fucking sociopath oh yeah outright fascist like let's not forget the actual founder of the wagner group which was progressive's deputy was his name is utkin or something something like yeah, yeah um had right had the nazi ss yep uh tattoos yeah runes tattooed mm. on him that's mm. how they identified his body from the wreckage from all the fucking nazi tattoos that he had all across his body. The name Wagner, he gave the group the name Wagner because Wagner was Hitler's favorite composer. (laughs) Like this is not subtle as to who these people were, you know? And to have this man being a complete chaos agent Mm. with a fair degree of popular support across the country. I mean, Russian public opinion is kind of impossible to gauge right now, but safe to say he had a large and still does has a large degree of popular support. That man running across the country, just inciting chaos and instability is not good, you know? And ultimately, yeah, I think it's it's by and large a a net positive mm. that he is gone. Yeah. Um yeah. as far as Africa, I sort of forget where we were going with that. Yeah, no, don't worry. I mean, what well, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm I'm with you. I mean, the thing the question of Putin's future, I think, is an interesting one because I'm 50-50 on this. You know, you could argue like mm-hmm. you have that Putin has solidified his power by killing Prigozhin and would put off any would-be plotters waiting in the wings. And Putin, like Stalin, I think you put it this way, like Stalin, will die in office um, and there'll be a scramble uh, worthy of a follow-up film by Armando Yanunucci. Uh, um, so it'd be the death yeah. of Putin rather than the death of Stalin this time. And that's the thing. So with that scenario... Um, Will the death of Putin lead to that very instability you would talk about with different factions? Because Putin's now, you know, hasn't really created a legacy that's obvious. Maybe he has. Maybe there is some succession plan, but I don't see it. Um, you know, so we when Putin does eventually die, if he dies in office and all that, then there still could be that horrible power grab 
with nuclear weapons all over the place later on. Um, but back to Putin's future for a moment. I think also the other side of my 50-50 is he might have overplayed his hand by killing Prigozhin. Um, and, you know, because Prigozhin, as you mentioned, had this very popular following. You know, with that mutiny, I think, quite frankly, had Prigozhin been more ambitious, um, it could be he who's in the Kremlin right now and Putin six feet under. Um, and I'm wondering... I think he could have... Yeah. I, I, I think he could have done it. Yeah, I think he could yeah. have done it. I don't think he really... I, I don't think it was his intention, but I think he could have done it. And probably no. his final thoughts on the plane as it was tumbling were, fuck, I should have got into Russia. Uh, sorry, gone into Moscow, you know. <laughs> yeah. Probably thinking, I should have done it. God damn it, you know. Um, and so the thing is, as we saw, Prigozhin seemed to be uh, very popular with the military and obviously with his own people within the Wagner mm -hmm. group. And the Wagner group have just been saying uh, definitely um, embedded in Russian operations in Africa, Syria and other places. And they played a vital role because Wagner's sort of become this deniable version of uh, uh, Russian special forces. They're probably better trained than even Spetsnaz, yeah. you know, um, and and yes. so I think this kind of puts Putin in a slightly awkward position. So obviously the Ministry of Defense, uh, well, the Russian Ministry of Defense, I can't remember what they call it now, but they have sort of taken official control of Wagner. But the thing is, you might take official control, but you might not have the loyalty. That's it, yeah. And they might, but they might not have the the loyalty. And if you just killed off the most popular man in the right. Wagner group, surely that's going to piss someone off. Um, and when you've got a lot of people yeah. who've got very you know, very good set of skills in Liam Neeson terms um, with a lot of weapons. I don't know. Um, does that make Putin weaker? I'm not sure. It's, it's so 50-50 because, as you're saying, um, Putin has sent this message. He does kill his opponents. I mean, he killed Boris Nemstov. He got him shot right outside the freaking Kremlin, for crying out loud. You know, um, yeah. and, and um, so Putin will kill. Um, and, and I will say as well, there are some people out there still who are like, um, kind of, uh, you know, they've suddenly got to always sort of doubt about, oh, maybe Putin didn't do it and all this sort of stuff. And for me, frankly, with all the murders I've seen connected to Putin, I'm kind of putting he's guilty until proven innocent, uh, frankly. Um, you know, and there are people out there who still think you can do deals with Putin and all that sort of stuff, and you can't. You know, Putin is a figure, a self-created figure from a Mario Puzo novel. You know, I think he's probably read way too much of The Godfather. Yeah. Um, and he's a bit like a, there was a comedy character in a TV show years ago in England um, about this guy who lived in a block of flats in London who thought he was the Godfather, and so he just acted like the Godfather, um, but didn't really have the clout of the Godfather. But um, so Putin's a bit like that. But you know, he's a very dangerous man and and ruthless and duplicitous. And I just don't think um, I, I think from a political point of view, it's very difficult to know how to deal with him next and to just take this sort of attitude of, um, you know, as I call it, this early 90s attitude of, um, you know, the Cold War's over and, um, oh, Putin may not have done it. Oh, you know, maybe we could do a deal with Putin. Bullshit. You can't. The man is ruthless. Yeah. Well, touching back to Putin's succession mm -hmm. quickly, I think if he dies in office, and I still think it, the most likely outcome for him is he dies in office um, at some point in the future, years from now. Um, if and when that happens, and there's no succession plan in place, that's a problem. Um, and you do have the the you know serious uh, risk of internal kind of infighting yeah. happen. Um, if 
you have a succession plan in place. The issue with, I think, mm. him putting a succession plan in place to do so would be to tacitly admit that he is mortal mm. and that his reign will not endure for all time. Yeah, and authoritarian leaders don't like that. Right. And once you name a successor, that name successor has a fair bit of clout, mm. you know, and you have to ensure that that name successor has, you know, the clout and the political backing and most importantly, the firepower to ensure that they are actually able to hold on to the Kremlin after Putin is gone. And in order to do that, you imbue that designated successor with a fair degree of power second only to your own. Mm-hmm. And that inherently creates a threat to Putin while he's still in office. Mm. Um, it's a it's a really hard thing to do in that situation. And if you are Putin and you're completely self-interested in your own role and your own power over this country and, you know, taking 50% of all the oligarchs' profits and everything. Mm, mm. Once you're gone, do you really care mm. what yeah. happens to the country? Yeah. It's not your problem anymore. No. You know, if you're totally self-interested in me and my wealth and my massive uh, uh, mansion on the Black Sea and the stripper poles in the basement and, you know, the armored trains and shit, once you're gone, who 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 cares? Yeah, you can't take your you toys know? with you as far as we know. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. But mm. as far as Wagner now, I think it's unclear. I mean, yeah, he's I think Prigozhin enjoyed a lot of popularity in Russia. Mm. Um and and certainly still does. Mm. The extent to which that would prohibit his fighters from following the Ministry of Defense. Um, if they are put under Ministry of Defense control, mm. I'm not sure. I think, you know, there's I, I think the sort of prevailing belief among Russians is who's gonna pay me, mm. you know, who's mm. gonna help me provide for my family. Mm. Um I think a lot of these people aren't ideological at all. No, I think, I think the mutiny is very much proven. There's very little loyalty or anything, really. It's all yeah. about um, who's going to provide for you. Um, and I think, you know, there was somebody quoted as that, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, and if the Ministry of Defense is going to do that, then okay. I mean, there's an irony in so far that Prigozhin's mutiny was largely instigated because they wanted Wagner forces to sign a contract with the Ministry mm. of Defense. Mm. Um, as far as their activities in, in Africa, if the GRU or some other branch of the Ministry of Defense openly sort of absorbs Wagner forces, um, takes over these operations in Africa, one, I mean, it's a, it's a huge sort of corporate transnational enterprise. It's not just, it's not just guys with guns on the ground, you know, Mm -hmm. there's, mines and there's various corporate entities and there's you know this whole uh propaganda network um it's a it's a kind of a vast um network of companies to Mm. sort of control Mm. um but at the same point you know as you sort of said if if the russian ministry of defense kind of openly takes us over like okay do do we now have um russian troops openly Mm. occupying these sections of Mm -hmm. um Central and Northern Africa. Yeah. Would the Russians care? Would they just come out and say, yeah, we we are. Mm. So what? Well, it's interesting. After the mutiny, it was the first time the Russian government formally admitted that the Wagner group was uh, an entity of theirs. 
Um, yeah. Because prior to that, there'd always been this. Oh no, no, of course not. You know, um, uh, you know, it's 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 crazy, really. The plausible deniability and how <laughs> pathetic it is, really. <laughs> Private private military companies mm. are officially illegal in Russia. Mm. Mm. Um, they're officially outlawed. They're not supposed to exist, but you no. know everyone does. A lot of the oligarchs kind of have their own Gazprom, the state-owned natural gas uh, conglomerate, has one. Um, even I think Prigozhin would would sue journalists for a long time who sort of well Bellingcat he was the leader of the yeah Bellingcat. I yeah. mean, the, the British government allowed Wagner to sue Bellingcat. Even with the sanctions against Russia, um, absolutely, and, and only, yeah, and only now um, is it the U.S. and uh, government are, uh, and the British government are now formally going to label the Wagner Group a terrorist group. <laughs> only now, um, and um, you know, it's a bit too little, too late, really. And yeah. the fact that journalists have been sued over it is, yeah, shameful. It's absolutely yeah. outrageous, and the fact that the British government allowed that. Um, you know, Russian oligarchs have been doing that and getting away with it for some time now, using the British court system to their advantage. And so, yeah. Well, to that point, um, with Wagner being a, a designated terrorist group, mm. if you have these African states openly sort of cooperating with the Wagner group, mm. um, having them run, you know, various corporate enterprises in their countries and stuff, so that then complicates their exposure under yeah. international law. Yes, I mean, yeah. they could open yourselves up to U.S. sanctions, cut them mm, off from the dollar, mm, mm. Um, you know, and then you, you kind of have your the choice to make. Do I want to keep these, you know, Russian goons stripping my natural resources mm, dry in exchange mm. for their, you know, protection? Yeah. Or do I want to be able to access the international banking system? Mm, mm, mm. No, indeed, indeed. Well, one quick um last piece on Prigozhin. Um, so he still haunts us from the grave of his troll farms. As you mentioned earlier, the Wagner Group's not just his military or paramilitary organization. It owns lots of things. The Internet Research Agency, which is a Russian troll farm, and was involved in meddling in the 2016 US elections, Brexit, and various other things. Mm -hmm. Basically, they, they still seem to be, the Internet Research Agency still seems to be active and following Progosian's death, pro-Progosian accounts on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, now known as X, which is the uh, how we mention Twitter's name these days, um, continued promoting... So on, on Twitter, uh, these pro-Progosian accounts continued uh, promoting positive narratives about him uh, with claims that the Wagner Group, which he led, would remain active in Africa. Uh, and even conspiracy theories emerged that Progosian might still be alive or blaming the West for the plane crash, you know, classic. Um, you know, and, and I'm surprised that they didn't talk about the proximity of the plane to Portland Down or something. Um, <laughs> which is the kind of classic sort of stuff. Um, you know, somehow Britain's responsible for it. Um, so, you know, it was a, a, a rocket strain of COVID from Porton Down that took out the plane or something. Um, anyway, and uh, there's an anonymous group called Antibot for Navalny, which was dedicating to tracking Russian language influence operations on X or Twitter. Um, and they identified a series of coordinated accounts pushing a positive narrative about Prigozhin. And this is Suggests that he might have actually retained control over the Internet Research Agency uh, until his death. Um, 
And the investigations have resulted in the removal of thousands of suspected uh, accounts from social media platforms. Uh, and they've also observed patterns in troll activities, including replies to tweets about Russia and Ukraine. Russian disinformation strategies have evolved since the Internet Research Agency's interference in 2016. Current tactics involve a mix of state-backed media, large telegram channels, and regular social media posts. And despite countermeasures, Russian disinformation continues to have a significant impact online. For instance, pro-Kremlin telegram channels have seen a substantial growth in subscribers since the outbreak of war in Ukraine. Uh, the nature of Russian propaganda dissemination is shifting towards a decentralized approach, relying more on proxies and sympathetic Western influencers. And in fact, there was quite an interesting article in the BBC about Western influencers who have been uh, parroting uh, Kremlin talking points and so on. Um, you know, sort of seems to be sort of the usual suspects and things and people who used to appear on Russia today. Uh, Matt, do you have any thoughts on on the kind of Internet Research Agency side of things? Uh, I think it largely falls under the same kind of complications that that Wagner faces post post Prigozhin. I mean, I think one of the big one of the things that made this troll farm so dangerous in 2016 mm. during, you know, our elections and and under Brexit is that people didn't really know that it existed or, you know, it wasn't it wasn't largely known that it existed. I mean, yeah, sure there's a bunch of researchers and stuff all over the internet and stuff academics who were who were calling us out, it was known to, you know, the intelligence services and stuff. But mm. by and large, I think these troll networks were so effective mm. because the public that were consuming it wasn't necessarily um, inoculated against it, you know? No. And it was also very well catered, some of it as well. People forget yeah. that in these um, troll farms, there are literally, it's like, uh, you know, if you think of it like a big office, there are dedicated um, areas of the office that focus on different countries. And within that area in the office, there are dedicated desks to different states or cities within the US, for example. And then those individuals, their task in their daily operation is to understand the culture of the country that they're, and even the city or area they're focusing on and look for the kind of niggles, the difficult, the points of contention and find strategies of ways to exaggerate those points of tension. Yeah. Um, I think it, it, it's it's just helpful in general that the public is sort of mm. aware that these actors are out there. I mean, mm. I, I still think I've said this before on here that I think media literacy is just absolute shit. Yeah, um, massively, massively. Yeah, like uh, I've been like we were talking about before we started recording. There's that uh, fugitive near me in Pennsylvania mm. who's on the loose. Mm. I've been like obsessively following it. Now, he's not near me, but I just no. find it interesting um, and seeing some of the some of the tweets that people are saying about it, just mm. the dumbest, dumbest things that you yeah. could possibly imagine. Like the sort of willingness of people to be like, I have no idea what's happening here. Mm. Like there's a lot that we don't know about the situation. Therefore I'll invent the most broke, complicated explanation for it possible mm. and say mm. that that's definitely wasn't it. That's definitely what it mm. is. You know, like there's some weird thing up in the sky that mm. I don't know what it is. Therefore, mm. it mm. must be a spacecraft from an intergalactic species <laughs> that's here. Yeah. Like, no, you don't know what it is yeah. because you don't know what it is. Doesn't mean it's the most complicated explanation for it, period. Mm. Um, mm. 
I don't know. I, I think to the extent that you <laughs> will see pain. interference. Yeah. To the extent that you will see that interference in, in our elections going forward, I, I think um, mm. it'll be, it'll be stuff along the lines of, of, of AI. It won't be exactly mm. sort of like what we saw in, in 2016. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. 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 It'd be interesting to see whether Prigozhin's death does have an effect on those uh, troll farms or not. Um, who knows? It, it, you know, it may have a negative yeah. effect or a positive effect. I don't know. Because I think, you know, as we'll talk about in, a, in a, an extra shot, there are obviously concerns about the US elections at the moment. It feels like a. I don't know. It just feels like a knife edge again. Um, and I, I think it's definitely, I think, you know, we've said this before, Putin's definitely wanting to hold out in the war in Ukraine as long as possible to see what the results of the US election will be, because I think he's in the belief that if it's Trump or someone with Trump's ideology that seems to be very pro-Russia, because Trump, uh, sorry, because Russia promotes itself as this sort of, um, the savior of the white Christian world and presents itself as sort of anti-woke, um, which, you know, is this sort of a woke hysteria going on still on the internet and on right-wing circles. So, you know, um, Putin wants somebody who thinks like that to win the next US presidential election because then they're most likely to benefit Putin. And I can imagine it's going to be, I think Putin probably believes his political future probably hangs in the, um, in the balance with those troll farms i think you know we're gonna see an awful lot of stuff yeah yeah i think it does mm. so it's uh yeah worrying worrying so i don't know i mean putin's i've never seen putin as stupid i don't think he will blow progression out the sky without thinking it through <laughs> yeah considering it took him a few months to since the mutiny um he's not being quick about it i don't think he's stupid i think he's misinformed and he's yeah. ill-informed yeah yeah i think he's gotten to a place where he's so isolated that he he got high on his own supply and he earnestly began to believe his own propaganda which i mean has been his downfall in ukraine that he honestly yeah. believed that you know there's some banderite fake idea of a country that would just immediately implode um, the minute his paratroopers dropped down onto Kiev, mm. and that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's created a situation where, frankly, if anybody doesn't say what he likes to hear, they're going to get in trouble. Um, yeah, you know, and that's and a problem that's not, for anybody. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. They, they you know, um, I think somewhere once somebody said that about the. George Lucas prequels of Star Wars that George Lucas was surrounded by too many yes men, which led to some very poor yeah. creative choices. But I'll leave yeah. audiences to decide whether that's true or not. <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, we've got one final story before we move on to extra shots. Um, so I'll just go for it quickly. Um, and it's all about this uh, Russian helicopter crew well not the crew but the pilot who defected to ukraine um and i'll summarize this sort of great article that's from the drives war zone by howard altman so in a nutshell a russian helicopter pilot named maxim kuzminov kuzminov defected from russia to ukraine on august 9th um after a secret six-month plan with ukrainian intelligence services uh the helicopter landed at a pre-arranged site in ukrainian territory and russian forces reacted by trying to shoot down the helicopter Helicopter. On top of that, the two additional crew members had no idea of the plot, and when the helicopter landed, they tried to resist Ukrainian forces. During the defection, um, the Mil Mi-8 helicopter was fired upon, and Kuzminov, the pilot, was wounded. Upon reaching Ukraine, 
Kuzminov claimed safety and he got a monetary reward and a new identification for him and his family. This action followed Kuzminov's disagreement with the war, apparently, and um, he somehow managed to um, get his uh, military activities to be involved in mainly transportation tasks rather than attack operations. Now, I'm not sure if I completely believe that, but there we go. Um, I'm sure he would say that, but but maybe that's me being yeah. cynical. Um, there was this, this the operation was codenamed Sinister, and uh, Kuzminov was influenced by the uh, Ukrainians' GUR Telegram channel and began communicating with the Ukrainian Defense Intelligence Directorate on Telegram. And apparently Ukraine's parliament passed a law a few months ago um, offering rewards to Russians defecting with equipment. And so Kuzminov, um, his rewards would have been something in the region of $500,000, but the exact amount has not been mentioned. Now, $500,000 for a mil MI-8 helicopter is actually pretty cheap because those helicopters on the market, uh, I did a quick Google to see what they cost, and apparently they're yeah. $8.5 million. So 500000 for an $8.5 million helicopter is pretty good going actually um because uh, i know there's a lot of criticism at the moment about how ukraine are perceived as spending money um and stuff there was some uh debate about the choice of pistols that um uh zelensky's bodyguards were using because they were like four thousand dollars each or something <laughs> so so there's all what sorts pistols? of well they were these um oh god i can't remember the make right now but they were these sort of custom kind of competition pistols that looked like an alien and they're supposed to have a um, a very uh, low recoil because of the I think the barrel's fixed or something like that. Um, so it, it's a very specialist pistol, and it did cross my mind of whether or not um, a target pistol is a good idea in combat because at least something like a Glock or a Six Hour is very well tested and been used by yeah. you know, the security services around the world. I mean, all the, over the world forever. Yeah, the Glock is yeah. kind of the gold standard. I mean, the U.S. Secret Service have now moved to Glock from Six Hour. Um, so you would have thought Zelensky's bodyguards would have followed suit with that, but instead they're using this very advanced pistol that's about four thousand um, dollars. I'll get the make of it and bring that up on extra shot in a minute. Mm. Um, so uh, back to the MI helicopter. So obviously the capture of the helicopter provides Ukraine with potential intelligence value about the enemy's communication. Um, and security system and the event has been an embarrassment for the russian air force but the thing is the fate of the additional crew members is the murky bit of all this because um they were killed trying to resist the ukrainians um now i don't think the ukrainians killed them in um, cold blood or anything like that but it's kind of a bit unfair on the defecting pilot to steal a helicopter of two crew members um and then they get killed by the end of it um <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's not quite what happened in the hunt for October. At least they faked a, uh, a nuclear crisis that caused the crew to um, get out. But uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, defecting of a helicopter is not exactly an easy thing to do. Um, and if it would arouse suspicion that you didn't have your crew with you, um, or if you try and recruit your crew, you you know put yourself more at risk with this defection. But it's the bit that strikes me as a little bit murky and makes me feel a bit um uneasy about it but that's the world of intelligence isn't it so uh, matt do you have any thoughts on this i i i felt that too about the crew so i mean mm. this pilot was the only one who sort of had this arrangement with the mm. ukrainian gur they got the ukrainians got his family out of russia to ukraine yeah before this yeah. happened so his mm. family Which was is pretty safe. amazing actually yeah 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 very impressive um, 
and also just sort of classic spy stuff really um so yeah they got his family out ahead of time and then he you know brought the helicopter over and i think it was i mean the the mia that airframe has been in operation all around the world mm. since like mm. the 80s you know so i think it's yeah. real intelligence value is in the electronics there's some uh pretty sophisticated countermeasures um electronic mm, countermeasure yeah. systems that were on there that would certainly be of interest yeah. um i would guess the uh encryption modules on the radios would be very mm, valuable mm. um and it was also carrying spare parts for um two models of uh sukhoi uh russian um fighter aircraft um yeah so that's of interest in our uh our national air and space uh intelligence center i'm sure um is all over that probably actually physically has that equipment um mm. and is uh like reverse engineering it um to understand how it how it functions but yeah so this helicopter landed mm. and then i mean it's reported in this story here that the other two crew members who had no idea of any of this um you know tried to run away or weren't or weren't about this operation at all and mm. um mm. It says in a kind of a roundabout way, but the Ukrainians killed them because they didn't want to defect. Um, and yeah, it is kind of, mm, I mean, the pilot had his family out of the country, like mm. already safe when he did this. The other crew members didn't, you know, they still had family back in Russia. So the, they were, they were not making decisions on the same level playing field. Like they just weren't. No. You know, well, he was in a sense playing God with them, wasn't he? In a way, I mean, it is, it, yeah, it, to put it sort of very cruelly, it's, it's, yeah, how do you? This is the interesting side of spying, isn't it? When you have to betray your colleagues, um, and I get, I get his political conviction because Russia is doing appalling things at the moment, yes, um, and obviously, these, these poor uh, crew members are basically going to be a footnote in a you know, Russia's terrible recent history in Ukraine uh, with the hundreds of thousands of people they've killed or could kill. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, it's something that makes me feel a bit uneasy about that. But, you know, that's probably why I'm not an intelligence officer. So. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think if, if, if you're, I mean, ultimately, if you see this operation as a net positive, which I do, yeah, you're still able to feel kind of uneasy about the details as far as these other crew members were concerned. I mean, anyone who's not a sociopath, I think probably will. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right to feel that way. Even if you're listening to this and you hear these details and you're like, eh, that's kind of messy. You're, you're right to feel that way. But I mean, I think this is also a perfect way to illustrate the messiness of the intelligence business and the messiness of the reality of war. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the business. That's the business. It is. Yeah. Uh, I, I think something that's interesting to me is that the Ukrainians seem to see this operation as a more valuable in terms of its propaganda. Mm. Um, I mean, they they had a press conference with this guy and named him and showed his picture and and gave a, a fair amount of details on how this went down. You know, so they they clearly see that that putting this out there um, is probably of greater value to them than the electronics mm. of the spare parts on on the helicopter. Um, I wonder then though, this guy, this pilot, has a target on his back for the rest of his life. 
Yeah. You know, you've seen what yes. the Russians do. Mm-hmm. You've seen what the Russians do to defectors. I mean, mm-hmm. Putin has said in interviews before, like, what's the one thing you can't forgive? Mm-hmm. And he said betrayal. Mm-hmm. He better grow a beard fast, doesn't he? <laughs> Seriously. And especially in yeah. Ukraine, the Russians mm-hmm. can reach out and touch you. Yeah, that that's something that that is a is a concern of mine that I wonder if this guy yeah. really thought through the risk that he's going to be living under for the rest of his life. Yeah. Maybe he hopes the risk is diminished if Putin's defeated. Maybe that was his thinking, I don't know. I mean, I would think whoever whoever would replace Putin is not going to be like, oh, it's fine. You know, yeah, warm and fuzzy. Like, it's, <laughs> no. Um and I, I, I wonder if it would have been better for them to not so publicly put out who this guy, what his name is, that we have his parents in Ukraine, here's his picture, mm. if it mm. would have been better to to have to stage some sort of thing that made it look like, you know, he tried to defect and the Ukrainians shot it down and he's killed, you know, and he can well, live yeah, under an assumed yeah. identity somewhere. Like the Humphrey um, October, where they pretended yeah. they sunk the submarine. Yeah, yeah. If yeah. that, I wonder if that would have been wiser than like putting this guy on television. I think this is the thing with Ukraine, isn't it? Because they want the PR value of it. Um, they want to be seen to be doing stuff. Because there's been obviously a lot of negative criticism in the Western press about Ukraine's progress, um, and I think because um, they're concerned about you know diminishing Western support and stuff. And I think they need to be seen as doing things. And also, I suppose they want to um, encourage other defectors too. Um, you know, this guy is the poster boy with five hundred grand or more, plus your family relocated somewhere nice. Maybe for some individuals who. Um, are sitting with a tank or a helicopter who could do with the money um maybe they might think it might be worth it. I, I this know. is this is controversial but I'll say it I wonder mm. if how much the Ukrainians see this value as purely as a propaganda tool you know mm-hmm. and how much if they care about that a great degree more than they mm. care about this guy as a human being who they've put in a tremendous amount of risk by doing this yeah 500 grand isn't a lot of money. I mean, obviously, they haven't dis- no. uh, disclosed how much they gave him, but I can't imagine they would have given him more than a million. And if you just relocate him and his entire family, it's going to be expensive. 500 grand can get you pretty far in Ukraine. Um, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. Not no, in London. But- <laughs> or here. Yeah, no. That's yeah. like a... That's a that's a my my price is five million. Yeah, that's upwards. a fun <laughs> night out in central London. Um, yeah, oh, I, I I really wonder how much they actually care about this guy and his safety, or they yeah. you know, they wanted their photo up and they got it. Um, mm. I question that. It's a it's a bit like do you remember that Michael Weiss article we spoke about maybe in the last episode where he was quite bold in saying about how he spoke to people in like the GRU and various other things and I was like why why would you say that because surely if I mean for example if you say I spoke to the accountant of the GRU that narrows it down to 10 yeah. people you know um why would you put your any source at risk like that um and it just it's bothered me. It still sticks with me. Is why I'm always interested by that. And, I, and certainly with the Ukrainians, for them, it is more about the propaganda victory, I think, than it is about necessarily the individual's safety. I think. I so. think. I think the Ukrainians, especially in their GUR and their military intelligence, mm. I think they are some mm. ruthless SOBs. Mm. 
And they have to be. Yeah. They have to be. Yeah. And it's it's very much mm-hmm. a zero sum game. I think they got their. You know what? I, yeah, I, I think they got their propaganda victory. They put him out there, and if in a couple years from now, mm-hmm. you know, this guy gets a face mm-hmm. full of Novichok, mm-hmm. I don't think they give a shit. And I wonder if this guy knows that. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But, um, you know, I can understand that ruthlessness because Ukraine is in a fight for its survival. Yeah. Um, so I don't want any listeners out there thinking that my, um, you know, uh, my my feelings about Ukraine are wavering because they're not, if anything. I think I feel like um, I've become even more pro-Ukrainian in the last few months of watching stuff um, and feeling like we need to find a way to do more. And like the fact that the F-16 thing is only just starting to happen in September and so on. Mm-hmm. And I think it's taking so long. Um, and I think that... You know, I feel like Ukraine need to have a significant victory before the U.S. elections because I do fear for the future of Ukraine, um, especially if Trump gets in. So, uh, but anyway, we will we will probably wrap up there. Sure. Just a quick um, uh, note. So, the pistol that was I mentioned earlier, which is known as the um, somebody called it a super Gucci alien pistol, in use with Zelensky's security detail. So, it's called the Laugo Arms. Alien, and it's a nine millimeter pistol. Uh, I believe it holds eighteen rounds. Um, I've been trying to read the technical gist of it whilst you were chatting, but I haven't really succeeded in that. But I believe it has some sort of um, low bore axis that makes it very accurate. So with repeat shooting, you don't get too much muzzle rise. And I think it's because the uh, it's either the barrel is fixed or an aspect of the slide is fixed i can't remember which way around it is um it looks cool yeah so but I, it does i think it if does a pistol, um, it's quite new yeah that's the thing i think if you're in close if you're in a close protection detail and a glock is good enough for the secret service it's good enough for you yeah well this is it this is it i mean it might be accurate but i think i mean we don't know um that individual who was carrying the pistol it might be a personal pistol it is not necessarily the the um u.s taxpayers money is paid for this four thousand dollar pistol um but the reason i brought it up is because there's been over the last few months i've seen a lot of um articles from various outlets where people are questioning the way ukraine's using the money uh and to be honest i don't think any of us really know um and i and i leave it to the ukrainians to decide how they best spend their money because they're the ones fighting for their lives right now um so if they feel the super alien gucci pistols the way to go then go go for it (laughs) so so there we go so um we're going to move on to extra shop which is on patreon so if you want to join us please do um you just need to go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies pick a subscription Subscription level that works for you uh, and you'll either get a set of coasters or a free cup and you'll be able to hear us on extra shot and also previous episodes so um for yeah so we will see you over there for those who are not coming with us thank you so much for listening and we look forward to catching you on the next espresso martini bye guys thanks for listening this is secrets and spies 